What's up, everyone? Today, I have Dr. Jonathan Quick with me on the podcast. Dr. Quick is the author of the book, The End of Epidemics, The Looming Threat to Humanity and How to Stop It. He's also the Managing Director and the Pandemic Response Preparedness and Prevention Leader at the Rockefeller Foundation. He's the Senior Fellow at Management Sciences for Health, and his areas for expertise include pandemic and epidemic threats, pharmaceutical policy, management, universal healthcare, and healthcare systems innovations. Dr. Quick has an incredibly impressive resume that I can only touch on very briefly. He has been featured on all the top news broadcasts, BBC, CNBC, ABC News, MSN, everywhere, basically. Uh, And his advice is sought on how to address the epidemic and the pandemic response uh, and he's got a long proven track record of, of being able to address certain epidemics all over the world. He's traveled to 70 countries across the globe, um, and he's helped with addressing problems in the world's poorest places to build strong, locally-led, and locally-run health systems. Dr. Quick uh, has a lot of interesting insight. To start this podcast off, we talk about his background, how he gets started into this, and we dive a little bit into how COVID-19 is being addressed currently in the United States and what exactly we can be doing better now and what we can be doing better to prepare in the future for things like this to come. So I hope you guys enjoy this one. So Dr. Quick, uh, thank you again for joining me and for uh, being so kind to be with us. I just we already we already kind of had to do this once, but we're going to try it one more time. Could you please just give us a, a background on? I know you have a very long, beautiful resume, and it's honestly um, really, really inspiring and impressive. And I want you to be very not humble, <laughs> because um, I know you're a very humble guy just from talking to you for the last couple minutes. Um, could you give us a little bit of your background, Doctor Quick? Yeah. Okay. Okay, Remy. Um, <laughs> it's good to be with you here. Uh, I, I, my career has been in global health, and how I got there, I was a third-year medical student and uh, also getting an MPH. I uh, needed to do a research project, uh, and year was 1978. I hooked up with a nonprofit group, which has um, been a big part of my life: Management Sciences for Health, based in the Boston area. And so my task, uh, this was um, just after WHO hatched its first model list of essential medicines. My task was to plan a trip around the world for myself doing uh, research on the uh, uh, the pioneering essential medicines programs in Latin America, and Europe, and Africa, and Asia, and, and the Western Pacific. And that led to a book that's now in its third edition online, 50 chapters called Managing Drug Supply. And that led to a uh, career, a lot based uh, based on uh, pharmaceutical management, making essential medicines uh, available to people. So I did uh, spent a number of years with this uh, nonprofit, MSH, uh, raised our kids in Pakistan, Kenya, and Geneva, Switzerland. I took a 10-year sabbatical from MSH to lead essential medicines at the World Health Organization. And that was a lively time because from the late 90s to the early 2000s, um, AIDS had become um, a death sentence in Africa and was a, uh, had become a basically a chronic disease in, in the North. And so we worked a lot on getting the prices down, setting up quality assurance, 
Um, and then I came back to the uh, U.S. in the mid-2000s to head up um, to be the president and CEO of Management Sciences for Health, um, which at our, at our peak, we had about 2,500 people from 40 different countries countries working, uh, people from those countries, um, uh, working to build strong locally led, locally run health systems, and really tackling the issues of uh, family planning, maternal health, AIDS, TB, malaria. And um, then have settled back at, at Duke where we started and um, had my first experience teaching undergraduates. Uh, they all survived and I learned a bit. Uh, and now on to the Rockefeller Foundation for the last month heading up their work on pandemics. Um, yeah. <clears throat> so number one, that's really, really cool that you were able to spend all this time abroad. And I'm actually kind of curious what inspired you to um, to travel abroad and to uh, tackle a lot of these um, uh, issues abroad. Well, I um, after doing residency, I spent a couple of years in, in the public health service, um, uh, treating gunshot wounds and snake bites and delivering babies. And I, I realized I like to have in whole countries as patients. That mm. um, one thing I saw in that in that eight country, five continent uh, tour of, of health systems in mm. the late 1970s was that the problems were very similar from country to country. Mm. What was different was the cultural context and which problems countries chose to address. I mean, Peru in it had one of the pioneering generic medicines programs. Who would have thought from 1973, uh, Tanzania was was pioneering in um, in pharmacy technicians. Uh, Papua New Guinea was a leader in pocket uh, standard treatment guidelines. And so I, I just found that, um, that that there was just great opportunity to really improve the health of of the people who who had the least and were the most vulnerable. Uh, by by just generating good ideas, um, usually locally, and then sharing them from country to country and continent to continent. That's really, that's incredible. I, I also kind of, um, you know, there is something special about working with kind of like those vulnerable populations. I work right now, uh, I'm also a family medicine doctor, just like yourself, um, and uh, still in training. And we do... Um, our our health center is a federally health uh, federally what is it federally qualified health center. Um, we treat the vul vulnerable population of the city over here. Very diverse, a lot of refugees, yeah. um, and it's really um, you know it's you know the the medicine that we see is a little bit different from the general population that you'd see in yeah. um, in other clinics and. It is like the tackling those problems. You know, I wasn't, a, I, even being in medicine over all medical school, a lot of these things were just kind of not really to my attention. Um, the different cultural and ethnic uh, problems, people coming from different countries that have dealt with. Yeah, no, it's yeah. true. And the thing is, those are the populations that most benefit from healthcare, where you get the Biggest health gain, yes, for the dollar an hour spent, absolutely, and, and that's one of the challenges that 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 I really saw vividly moving back to the U.S. several years ago was mm -hmm. that, I mean, when you ask how can we spend twice as much as any other rich country and have more maternal more and have higher maternal mortality, infant mortality, mm -hmm. um, thirty to fifty percent more 
preventable mortality from chronic diseases, it's because we're spending the money in the wrong places. Mm. Um, and so, um, I mean, that's one of many reasons why yeah. I went into global health, because when, when you get it right for a population in, in need, with the nonprofit that I led um, in this age, we worked in a lot of post-conflict situations, Afghanistan, Haiti, South Sudan, DR Congo. And what was amazing is the resilience of people. I mean, you'd hear the word resilience. It really means something. They have been through tough times. But everybody, everywhere, all the health people we work with, they got a great joy out of having the opportunity each day to come home and say, you know, I've made my country a little bit safer, a little bit healthier for me and, and my children and all. So um uh, that's that's really where the kind of communities you're choosing to work in. That's really where you can have an impact. Yeah, and I, I you know, what really resonates with me is the fact that you say like the the impact of having just very basic healthcare, having those like you know guidelines that we use, like the pot, like the bang for your buck is just is really strong in terms of like from what the baseline would be to what things are with um, just a little bit of healthcare system in place for these communities makes a huge difference. Yeah. And I don't know if the difference is because, you know, generally in the American population, we're not dealing with a lot of the chronic health issues that, you know, may plague other countries. I don't know if that's maybe part of it, but I, it's interesting that you say the chronic health problems in this country we spend we have worse outcomes in all of these chronic disease categories, and you're talking about maternal mortality as well. Um, why why is it that we're spending so much more and still having worse outcomes than a lot of countries? And I, you said you mentioned we're spending well, the money in the wrong place. Well, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, you you get um, w- w- we should be spending it to be sure that everybody has access to primary care. Um, and um, antenatal care, family planning, all of these um, really good value interventions. And, uh, you know, folks who say, you know, people come in for a heart attack, we will take care of them at the hospital. It's not a problem. They'll always have a place. And I'm thinking, yes, after 20 years mm-hmm. of not getting their hypertension, their, their diabetes, their hyperlipidemia treated, I mean, universal health coverage um, is something that... Um, Post-World War II, Europe guaranteed to the population the essentials and said, look, part of living in a modern society is having access to to safe roads, free speech, education, and essential health care, basic health care. And and that has that has huge value. And um, so you 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 look at those. um, I mean, I have a um, one of the one of the graphs I use when I when I do uh, sessions on universal health coverage, um, which is now taking off in a lot of countries. I mean, mm-hmm. there are 50 countries worldwide that are at or on the way. It, mm-hmm. It's tough, but um, but it's what I call the tale of two visions. And so there's a, it's a graph, and just for simplicity, I pick the U.S. and then um, uh, Canada, France, U.K., um, and, and Germany, I think. And one graph is the cost, and one graph is the excess, is the differences in in infant mortality, maternal mortality, and all that, and he asked the question: How can you spend, you know, twice as much and have, you know, mediocre results? And and the answer is, their health system was built 
on the vision of universal health coverage. That's what they invested in. Um, a large a large share of that, a very large share is delivered privately, but it's a public guarantee that those services that everybody gets, the part of the deal of living in a 21st century society is having access to those services. Whereas if you look at the history of our health system, it was driven by the Blue Cross Blue Shield vision of getting the doctors and hospitals paid. Mm. That vision was realized uh, richly, as we see, but mm. it was never a health vision mm. that drove the creation of the health system, which is why it's so challenging here mm. um, to um, to get the sort of equity and and um, equality of mm. of um, ex- and, you know access to. The, the essential uh, and basic package of health services. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is a topic I, I could spend another two hours talking to you about alone. And I'd love to yeah. maybe in the future have you on just to talk about just universal healthcare in general, because yeah. there are a lot of things in our healthcare system that are actually counterproductive to the aims that we have, because there are, you're in a way incentivized to have more sick care and, you know, People are, the, the, you're incentivized to do more procedures. You're incentivized to see more patients. You know, the incentives are all backwards in terms of, you know, humans are humans. Na- human nature is human nature. People are going to do what's going to benefit them the most. And I'm not saying any physician has ill intentions, but regardless, human nature, hospital, business, you know, we're going to, we're going to do what brings in, you know, unfortunately what brings in the money, you know? Um, well, yeah. Well, so I think it was George Bernard Shaw that said, "I, I can't understand why the, the system that we use to give bakers the incentive to bake more bread is also used for surgeons." Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but yeah. it's that's interesting. And you know, here's this. There's this. I, I want to go off topic just for a second because I'd really love to yeah. hear your idea on this. Um, but I've, I'm sure you've heard of kind of direct primary care being a little bit of a movement in like the family medicine space. It's basically member. It's uh, a low cost membership, almost like a gym membership for a primary physician, where you kind of take out the middleman of insurance, offer at cost medications, at cost labs, uh, very low monthly payments for a lot of patients. I have a good buddy of mine in Detroit who. Um, offers this for forty dollars a month, um, and medications—the most expensive medications, like six dollars for thirty months for a thirty-day supply. Um, and there's this, there's this movement that's growing, and to me, it makes so much sense because you're not incentivized anymore to to um, bill per visit or to have a patient come in for a follow up or to do a certain procedure, you're just incentivized to bring patients into your practice and treat them and address all of their needs, no matter how often that is or how little that is. And to me, that just seems like a win-win for the physician and the patient. It just seems like a a good model in a way. And maybe that could be incorporated in like a universal system. Yeah. No, I think that sounds like, like like a really promising model. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but anyways, uh, I'd like to move on because I'd like to focus this podcast on COVID um, and like the COVID response. And you did write a book in the past called um, uh, Epidemic uh, or based on the epidemic. Um, 
on epidemics. Um, could you give us a little bit of a highlight reel of the book and what motivated you to do that? And, you know, this is, you, you released this book in 2018 and, you know, just in time. Yeah. So, um, the, I, the idea, so I spent most of my time as, as I've talked about in, in the whole area of pharmaceutical management and health systems development. And, um, in, in 2014, remember we had the Ebola outbreak in West Africa, mm-hmm. and there was a real lag. Um, West Africa, I mean, Africa had fought off over 20 Ebola outbreaks over the past 30 years plus, um, always less than 1,000 cases, far fewer deaths. Um, this one got way out of control, and it took a while for the world to, uh, to wake up. Once they did, there was a big response. And I kind of stepped back. I'd been at the World Health Organization through it, uh, when SARS, the first coronavirus to go global, uh, exploded in 2003. And we'd been through bird flu in the mid-2000s. Uh, um, and, um, and, and basically, uh, and swine flu in 2009. And basically, whenever there was a big outbreak, there was all this panic, and um, Ebola set Twitter records globally uh, because of the panic. Um, lots of promises made, literally thousands of pages of, of reports about how we'll do things better and, and mm-hmm. all. And then a few years later, not much had changed. Wow. So I had learned um, the, big, the big lesson from the AIDS epidemic, from going for a point at which in the year 2000, Sticker price of, of AIDS medicines was $12,000 per person per year. Um, less than 1% of the people in Africa who needed treatment had it. It was a chronic disease in the North that had emptied the hospitals um, in the late 90s once treatment became available. And, you know, it looked impossible. Mm-hmm. Well, we crashed the barriers. Too, too expensive, no money, um, can't do it, no drugs. The common thing in crashing those barriers to scale up was AIDS activism. So when I was looking in 2014 at what I thought would happen and what I could do about it, um, I, I was fortunate to have a, a Rockefeller fellowship to spend a month in, in Bellagio. And I decided, you know, I like writing books um, and I've done a bunch of them, but I want to do, I want to, I want to do a deep dive in the, to the last century of, of epidemics and pandemics um, task the question, what can we do to prevent these from happening? And um, so the book was called The End of Epidemics, The Looming Threat to Humanity and How to Stop It. Um, it's available in, in Kindle and hardcover. Um, I don't get any money. Yeah. Uh, we'll, 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 link it. we'll definitely but, link that in the show notes. Yeah. And, and so the big conclusion of that, after, of this, going back to the Spanish flu, is, is that um, as Louis Pasteur says, uh, said uh, over 100 years ago, the bugs will always have the last word. The microbes, <laughs> les microbes, yeah. will always have the best last word. So there will be local disease outbreaks. Yeah. But the difference between a local disease outbreak, um, as all of them start, and a catastrophic regional epidemic like e- Ebola or a global pandemic like a coronavirus, that difference is to a very large extent human action or more often human inaction. And so what was really clear is the threat is growing and, um, and, and continues to grow. 
the risk factors are greater, globalization and a variety of things. Scientists and public health people know what to do. There's no mystery what we need to do in order to get these early and be prepared, get them early. Um, and it's actually cheap compared to, and we're seeing now how expensive it really is mm-hmm. when a, a, um, a virus that could have been contained gets totally out of control. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I, I, I look back at what, what are the lessons, what, what are the costs. Um, what, what we're seeing now is what I call the epidemic cascade. You get a, mm-hmm. you get a, a virus that kills people. Um, there's, a, there's fear that goes with that. It has a social knock-on around um, schools and can, and all that. It has an economic knock-on. And, um, so I distilled distill the lessons mm-hmm. of the last 100 years down into seven key things. Mm. And, um, and, I, and they're really straightforward. Number one, lead like the house is on fire. When we, time matters so much, so much. Um, and I'll give you an example. And we, we've seen, well, we've seen it already. People have seen it with coronavirus, you know, how the curve takes off and, and how important it is that quickly. So that sort of decisive leadership is is, mm-hmm. is absolutely essential. Mm-hmm. And we've got great examples of, of people who led and who made the decisions. And we use the example of, of uh, D.A. Henderson, who is a CDC, American CDC doctor, um, in in the fifties uh, and sixties, who kept pushing on smallpox eradication? It took fifteen years for the world to decide to eradicate smallpox. After we had eradicated in Europe and North America by the year nineteen fifty, it took them from that. It took the World Health Organization, um, the the world's health leaders. That's mm-hmm. who the World Health Organization. It took the world's health leaders fifteen years to decide to do for the rest of the world what we'd already proven possible in Europe and North America. Hmm. Um, and 30 to, 30 to 40 million people, mostly the poor and voiceless in Africa and Asia, died while world leaders were talking. So leadership's really important. That's number one. Hmm. The second is, is re- resilient health systems and building the basics of health systems that can, can provide that on the ground uh, surveillance and all. The third thing is, is, um, is active prevention. And it's 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 basic sanitation. It it's um, it's you know using the the vaccines that we have. It's mosquito control. I mean, we had a panic a few years ago over uh, over the Zika virus, mosquito borne, and all that. Um, so that's number three. Um, number four is what we call um, timely true fatal fictions. The whole issue of just what you're talking about, fake news and the importance of clear communication. There's some basic principles of pandemic communication that the CDC has been t- developed during the, the SARS outbreak and has been teaching everybody from governors to uh, county health leaders about how, how you do communication in the face of a pandemic. Because when, particularly as we've seen, when you don't have a, a vaccine, and you don't have um, medicine treatment, then you got to count on, on people's behavior. They got to trust you. So, um, the, and those principles are things like be first, get your message out there, uh, be truthful, say what you know, say what you don't know, be empathetic, and so forth. So that's number four: timely truths and fighting the fatal fictions. And we can talk about that. 
the, 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 four, the fifth thing is innovation. And we identified five what we called um, game-changing innovations. One of them um, is, is, is um, point-of-care diagnostics. Mm. We, we, we should have and could have been much more prepared on that. Uh, another one was a universal um, uh, flu vaccine. Um, flu vaccine is a good example of where mm-hmm. where we as a public health community just sort of turned a blind eye mm-hmm. and, and once woke it up, um, um, we're still slow to respond. Yeah, I can hear the and, cries of all the anti-vax people crying right now because <laughs> someone just turned this podcast off. And why? Why do? Why are we getting this response from it? We're gonna have to go into this part of the conversation at some point, but. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, let me come back to that. So yeah. I'll finish that because yeah. yeah. we, we got two more. Yeah. Um, the, the third, the, the, the sixth one is investing. We looked at the cost uh, of, of what it would take um, and why people don't invest at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then see economics and politics of now. And then um, number seven is ring the alarm, rouse the leaders. Mm-hmm. It will take advocacy. Communication and advocacy, if you're a public health person, is not something you do when the real work is done. Mm-hmm. It's part and parcel of, of, of the work of, yeah. the, of, of public health. Yeah. I think that part of it may be a little bit, I think with social media now, with a lot of, at least in the community I've been in on social media, a lot of physicians and residents really like, are you really, you know, doing a good job with getting the right information out there and really stressing the importance of physical distancing and yeah. really stressing like that this is serious. We need to take this serious. That I think that part of it we we have um we've probably made some good strides in, although there is the other side of that, which is like also using the same platforms to spread the opposite message, um, which is equally harmful, yeah. probably negating right. any benefit effect of having this. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. It's, it's, it's um, social media is what we call a double-edged sword, as you say. It 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 you can get the right messages out. Uh, you also can get a lot of of, of um, misinformation out. But you also understand what is um, what the misinformation is out there and combat it. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the people we feature in the book is a Sierra Leonean. Muhammad um, Jalla, mm-hmm. and and they were the story that gets told about West Africa and that outbreak is that the health systems were messed, the politics were messed, and all that, all of which is true. Mm-hmm. The story that's not told is how quickly the outbreak ended once you got the local, the religious leaders, the the traditional healers, the four thousand market women involved. Mm-hmm. But the key thing was. Getting the correct messages out, but also listening carefully to the incorrect messages. Mm-hmm. So comprehension is not just pushing out the 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 information you need to know, but also countering things. And, mm-hmm. and the last point, humans can learn learn to new, use new technology mechanically much, very quickly. Mm-hmm. It's socially how to use it that takes longer. And so what I've been impressed by with coronavirus is that um, that Facebook has partnered with seven different fact-checking organizations. And in fact, there's an international association of fact-checking organization, a kind of certification of self-policing, which yeah. I hadn't realized. But that partnership has 
started setting some benchmarks mm. for actually filtering out yeah. dangerous information. So yeah. I think we're learning how, like, I mean, you know, cars killed people yeah. by multiples more than they do now when they came out because yeah. they weren't safe. Social media has contributed to the death of thousands of people um, with bad information. But I'm, I, I actually am encouraged by some of the measures that are coming into effect to, mm -hmm. to try to, um, for the big uh, providers, really word out, um, weed out the fatal fictions. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because there, there probably could also be a slippery slope to that as well with uh, the, the filtering. Um, but I also think that it's needed because there's so much wrong information that there, sh there needs to be some steps to, to, to kind of, um, you know, fact check that. Cause there's just, there's, there's a lot out there. And unfortunately yeah. not everybody has a medical background to understand, you know, why certain things yeah. are just straight up wrong. Um, and you know, that, yeah, it's, uh, yep. it's unfortunate. And, yeah. um, so, so, so you've just listed, so seven key things. Um, and my mind's blown up with questions because, uh, Number one, you mentioned something just a little bit ago about the lessons. So we learned you learned all these lessons basically fighting Ebola. And we knew what we did wrong and we knew we had to do something different. But and you have we've had thousands of reasons that things that we could have changed, but then nothing was done. Is that correct? Well, no, or, actually where some actually, things were done. In fairness, here's yeah. the thing. In okay. fairness, a lot, a lot does happen afterwards. Okay. And Ebola. Um, uh, that stimulated the, a number of really good things that needed to happen. Mm -hmm. So a lot happens, but not enough. Not, not enough. enough to make the world as much safer as, as we're never right. going to make the world completely safe, right. but we can make it a whole lot safer. And so there's more to do. Do you think right now we're going to learn, do you think post-COVID we're going to learn from what's happened right now? and change a lot of things? Or do you think we're going to forget and just move on and, and not learn the lessons? So here's what I say to people. It, whenever, I, whenever that question comes up, remember this moment. Think about your family. Think about your kids, your parents, um, retired people down the street or yourself. Um, uh, think about people in... Um, you know the Afro-American community in, in the U.S., which is in, and the urban poor who have been devastated. Think of the human misery, and remember that. You know, I, I, I it's going to be weird. I hope we have some sort of a, of a, of a, I don't know what we're going to call it, but some sort of an annual thing where we, when we're, where we're reminded this misery, and then remember that this didn't need to be this way. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean. The and it's you know we can if you think down what needed to have happened um, uh, and that is to identify early on that something different was happening there and health workers did that's the front line mm -hmm. um, astute frontline health workers are the key to this mm -hmm. in in and in 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 coronavirus mm -hmm. two thousand and three it was a a epidemiologist a WHO guy Carlos Subano who went out to investigate, they knew something was going on with, with, with that coronavirus. And he said, there's something different happening there. Mm. He knew. Yeah. And once you got that, that once you got that, 
then having already people, not just in the health sector, but people at the local level, because of because you've had a regular program of awareness, mm-hmm. they know to trust the health, health people and say something different's going on. Because mm-hmm. imagine if we had gotten the, this coronavirus before it got into a major holiday season in a big city with a lot of travel and exploded globally. Mm-hmm. I, I do believe we would have had a much better chance. Mm-hmm. And so one, the current role I have now at the Rockefeller Foundation with pandemics, I mean, what, what are the, we're working some in the U.S. Um, on the whole um, uh, ramping up of testing um, because y- you're flying blind through, through an epidemic mm-hmm. um, if you don't have adequate testing out there. Mm-hmm. And we've done, started working with the states on that. We can talk more about that. I definitely want to go but into that in a little bit. Yes. It, yeah, the other part of it is that, you know, the the world's the world first came together. Leaders in the world first came together a hundred years ago to say, you know, these diseases are crossing borders. We got to do something, mm-hmm. um, and that sort of developed a little. And then fifty years ago, we had the first international regulations about this, um, and then those got stronger over time. But it was only six months ago, last September. What is that? Eight months ago. Mm-hmm. that we have a global health security index that gives us a score, one to 100, mm-hmm. of the readiness of countries around the world. And that becomes a huge tool to get the leadership around the world, to get the people in their countries to do the things mm-hmm. that we know are affordable, doable, and would make us safer. So mm-hmm. we now enter our... I have a question, point. quick question about that. Yeah, yeah. Was- was the U.S.'s score reflective of our response right now? <laughs> so this is an interesting question. Okay. Because the others, the others, I'm glad you asked. Uh, so the others, um, the other countries, um, it was very reflective. So example, um, it, I mean, um, Iran, which lost control early on, they were red. They were like a you know, low score. Mm-hmm. Uh, North Korea, for a variety of reasons, but also because they were a bright they were 70 out of 100. They did well. Um, Italy was one of the countries in Europe that, that was in the sort of yellow zone, as it were. The U.S. scored one structurally, which is a, a lesson uh, on that. But two or three things on that. Number one, um, we had we had gotten into um, what we call a pipe, uh, the cycle of panic and neglect. Mm-hmm. I was talking about that. So. After after 9-11, um, we made this big public health fund, and over the years, we defunded it when there wasn't anything, um, and it's half of what it was supposed to have been, and in a period following the financial crash, we defunded and de-staffed 45,000 health work, uh, public health workers. Wow. So the fact that we had trouble with testing and other things, I mean, we had, and it, it wasn't this was a, in my view, a bipartisan failure because mm-hmm. Congress wasn't investing, mm-hmm. and and this is where we need to hold our our, our leaders um, accountable, and and then we we so that was one issue w- w- that we didn't keep up with. The other is you've got to have unified leadership um, in in when you're fighting a pandemic. Clear messages, science based messages. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that was an issue. Clearly, so there, all there things was, that we have done really well right now. 
Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So those are the lessons. Yeah. The third thing, yeah. the third thing. So there was leadership, funding, yeah. and practice. We scored zero on this scale of regularly practicing. Not that there weren't practices, but there weren't enough of them. So mm. there are some lessons there. Mm. Um, yeah. Interesting. And, and what about with, um, I guess my, my, my other curiosity was about, I, you mentioned earlier there was, you know, we, there was a chance we could have contained this. Um, is, do you think it was, it, it was possible to keep this contained within China, within Wuhan? Or because of all the international uh, travel, not catching it soon enough, like well, what, what could have been done catch, differently? The, the, it, it's the time. Yeah, it's the time, and uh, and um, and that that really is, is the key thing. Mm-hmm. And because we, we have two hundred significant outbreaks every year mm-hmm. um, around the world, and all you know, all of them get um, you never hear about you know ninety percent of them. So getting it early, mm-hmm. I mean, it's a it's really it's a bad virus for yeah. sure. Um, and we would have had a, a coronavirus epidemic. Um, but I I I I personally believe from the the time frame and everything else that um, if we had gotten it uh, quicker um, and been able to get the diagnostics and be able to understand what mm-hmm. was there. Um, I, I don't think something quite of this magnitude was inevitable. So what do you do then? Well, so what would you do in that situation? Let's say we caught it early in China. What would have been done? Like, is that, would it, would it be like pressuring, hey, no more travel outside of this area? Would we say, okay, we need to trace every single person before it gets yeah, uncontained? Conven- yes, conventional yeah. public health. I, I mean, mm. it's, it's, it's the, the, um, case identification, contact tracing, mm-hmm. isolation, quarantine. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, absolutely. How do you make sure and, nothing and slips get, through the cracks, though? Well, so you're going to mm-hmm. have that, yeah. um, and um, and and you are going to have, yeah, yes, you will have that. But mm-hmm. that's what you you need to um, at each point do the containment and mm-hmm. and get it get it quickly. Yeah. Interesting. So, I, I mean, it is given, yeah. But but here's the thing: where we are now with it, um, it, one of the lessons from from pandemic viruses. So the thing that makes a pandemic virus is respiratory virus, um, moderately contagious. Um, they're very you know re, you know very contagious, mm-hmm. um, and and moderately fatal. Um, if it kills too many people, it it, it doesn't spread as well. Yeah. If it kills them too quickly, yeah. Mm-hmm. This, it, and this is a tough one because it's asymptomatic. Mm-hmm. Um, but once it's out there, typically it goes until um, one of two things happens: either you get a really safe, effective vaccine, or it runs out of fuel. And mm-hmm. we're the fuel. Um, um, on a, you know, people who um, have no immunity to it. Mm-hmm. And and so the concern now is that. Um, in the U.S., we've gotten up um, and plateaued. That plateau that we see nationally at well over 20,000 new cases a day um, is a mix in states that are still on the upswing, as you've described Massachusetts is, mm-hmm. some states that are on the downswing. And so um, at, at Rockefeller, we uh, bringing together experts in, from public health and um, and epidemiology and all about about three weeks ago uh, launched a um, national uh, COVID testing action plan that really said, okay, 
Um, we're at about a million tests a week now, which is like a pittance, like 0.3% of the population or something. Um, and so um, we need, we believe that, and in looking at it, we can get from 1 million to 3 million over about eight weeks by simply unleashing the capacity, the, un- the underutilized capacity in university labs and local labs and really getting, getting um, the system up and going. And then, and then in the next phase, getting from 3 million tests a week to 30 million tests a week mm-hmm. by taking advantage of technological innovations, which are happening very quickly. Mm-hmm. So now it's mostly the sort of, you know, what I call the big box PCR testing. Yeah. Um, but we'll get to more point of care testing and home mm-hmm. testing. We've got one home testing out there. And, and that mix will give us vigilance because mm-hmm. as we loosen up the social restrictions, which, which are, uh, are, are really, they have them, that, um, that the impact on the economy itself is deadly. I mean, yeah. people say, is, do we yeah. want to, they say, yeah. should we save the economy or save lives? That's a false choice yeah. because pandemics kill three ways. I'm really glad that you brought this up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. pandemics kill three ways. They kill through the direct effect of the virus. They kill by disrupting health services. Mm-hmm. In, in West Africa, as many people died from, um, from a child, childbirth, um, lack of malaria uh, treatment and prevention, mm-hmm. um, and immunization, as many people died from disruptive health services as from the from from the virus itself, and the third way it kills is economic disruption. Mm-hmm. We know from studies of the two thousand and eight Great Recession, just from disrupted cancer care alone in in Europe, a quarter of a million people were were, were, were extra deaths happened. Yeah, and you add on suicide and the impact on child mortality at all. Yeah. So. Um, so therefore, we need to be able to open the economy. But to do that, we need enough testing in order to catch those recurrent outbreaks, mm-hmm. which will happen, to monitor workplaces and to monitor high-risk places like nursing homes and prisons and uh, you know densely populated, uh, low-resourced urban areas. Mm-hmm. And, and so th- that, that is absolutely vital in order, in order for us to be able to manage the the opening reopening our communities and our workplaces yeah in a, in a safe way yeah i really i love that you brought that up because what i'm what i'm no so i think as i mentioned a lot of people on social media especially doctors were really stressing the response to covid the social distancing the precautions but we're ne- we're also not considering the economic impact and not, I mean, it's not that we're not considering it, but we're fighting the battle just here, making sure everybody knows this important, but not enough work is also being addressed on like the economic side of things. And I think we also need to be talking about, you know, that because at some point the economic collapse is going to be worse or, you know, just as bad as this, or it could even like, you know, yeah. depending on how bad it gets, um, that could be way worse. So we need to be balancing that conversation with the economic downfall, because that's also going to affect health outcomes as well. Um, yep. And I, I, I'm really Absolutely. glad that you brought that up because right now, a lot of people are really upset in this country. Um, you know, I don't think that we're going to be able to keep this up much longer because people are definitely reaching their breaking point. Um, my hometown is Michigan. You know, the news all over there, the protests, that's not going to get better, I don't think. Um, 
And so we have to start balancing that that uh, kind of that conversation with saying, okay, we this isn't. I don't think we're. Uh, how long are we going to be able to keep doing this? We need to start figuring out how are we going to go to the next step and open things up now, um, and right. weighing weighing those two things equally, or at least close to equally. So yeah, and I think part of that is. Um, is actually uh, recognizing that different parts of the country are in different places. All right, excellent. Point. And um, and and getting the outbreak under control controls is sort of a relative term, but mm-hmm. but um, it, the social distancing has worked. Yeah. I, I mean, it, the curves have mm-hmm. um, are nothing like what they would have been. Mm-hmm. So oh, I can't even imagine how I mean, disastrous this would have been. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, but but I mean the basics um, of you know just really vigilant about hand washing, using those masks, and keeping keeping the distance, um, really watching out for for large scale uh, um, gatherings, and and just pace it by what what you're what you're experiencing, um, not personally, but what a, a state or a whole region is, is experiencing. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 be ready. I mean, we have to. You know, they talk about people living with with HIV, um, and we. I mean, we're we got to be a community recognizing that we're we're living with a deadly enemy amongst us, mm-hmm. and and I think it's all on us to um, um, to practice some of the defensive moves that are that are pretty basic, and as yeah. I say that. Um, good hygiene, social distancing, and and realize that we're going to have to have a mindset that lets us uh, work this through over many many months. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I I um, it's still it, I mean it's one thing we can we may have a vaccine that's proven itself effective. Um, and safe within a particular, um, usually vaccines are tested in the younger age ranges, like 18 to 45 or so. Mm-hmm. Um, we may, by the end of this year, have something that works in that population. But if we're going to use that really in a large-scale way, we need to know that it's safe. Back to the anti-vaxxers and all. Yeah. We, we had an experience in in the 1970s where we um, made a flu vaccine. Um, yes, a, a um, uh, a swine flu vaccine. Mm-hmm. And um, it turned out that it caused a slight increase in Guillain-Barre mm. um, syndrome, you know, the yeah. ascending paralysis. Yep. And and that tainted the whole thing. Actually, the head of CDC got fired because of it. He yeah. made a good public health judgment, but they moved quickly on the vaccine uh-huh. and it was effective, but um, yeah. there were safety issues. So, mm-hmm. so the long way of saying we, we've got to yeah. um, be ready for a longer run and and figure out how to work with this virus yeah. in a, in a way also, where we can open society, but overwhelm health systems. Yeah. There's a long-term also, you know, just thinking about that, there's a long-term implication about that because this is a pivotal time right now for the creation of vaccines. And if there were to be a blip and that we rushed this too fast and there were a serious, um, uh, you know, health outcome from a vaccine, which I'm not anticipating, but if there were, then we'd lose a lot of trust from people who already mistrust, um, you know, the public health response with with vaccines. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I think like this is a especially pivotal time to make sure we don't rush it. Make sure we get it right and reassure people 
that the due diligence was done and that this is safe. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, yep. That's, uh, yeah. Um, I want I yep. wanted to talk about testing because testing was, um, yep. you know, like the big next thing and, um, kind of like the next steps in how we can reopen, um, Mm-hmm. you know, the country. A couple of things about testing. Um, we, we really, um, I mean, uh, we are obviously slow on that. We're really stick, uh, picking up now. And I think that we can, we really can move progressively to the next phase. But what we're seeing now is, is that, that states are all over the map in terms of, of, um, the 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 way they're using tests and what they what they think are enough tests and all, mm-hmm. and so there are a couple of metrics, the two key metrics that that let you know whether you've got enough tests overall. One test, one measure is the number of tests per per million people, mm-hmm. and the other is uh, the simple test of what percentage of uh, what percent what percentage of the tests you do. Are positive. Mm. So if you are like um, in New York, um, there, but you know, over twenty percent of the tests are positive. Mm-hmm. That means they're getting the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. And um, when when epidemiologists have looked at this across countries and said, "Well, what you know, what do you need when there's a really active outbreak?" Australia, their rate is about two percent, one and a half to two percent. And the epidemiologists figured they're getting about identifying about three quarters of the cases. The UK, they're 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 at, at about thirty um, percent positive, which means they're really just getting the very tip of the iceberg. Mm-hmm. And they're the UK is too about, wow. okay. about of the when yeah. they of their tests. You put yeah. it together, um, about thirty percent of the 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 or twenty five percent of the of the tests um, that they do are positive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just want to, cla- can I clarify on that real yeah. quick? Is yeah. it 30% sure. of the tests that are just being done? That's not in a, like a, that's not in a, like a general, like randomized population. That's like people, no, 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 people no, 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 no. With that, that, symptoms that's basically, yeah. 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 And and that tells you that they're testing a subpopulation. Yeah. And, and so mm-hmm. what, what, um, what the studies indicate, and this is out of, out of the London School of Hygiene Tropical tropical medicine at that level they're probably only getting one out of 20 cases mm. so overall in, in the in the u.s um the the average is is about about uh yeah the average is 20 percent. so for every five tests we do we find one positive mm. so we're probably only getting maybe one out of 10 or 15 cases. So when we say we have a million cases of, of, um, of COVID-19, yeah. we probably have 15 million. 15 million, and yeah. I've heard, so, I've heard estimates even much higher than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it could be higher. Yeah. Um, but so when we're doing everything we can through so, uh, social distancing and all to keep a plateau, um, then we, we sort of test testing is 
I mean, we're doing things to control the, the, the outbreak. Mm-hmm. When we loosen up those controls, we need a much, much higher degree of testing mm-hmm. um, in, order to, in order to track those high-risk places and mm-hmm. respond quickly. That's the whole thing about responding quickly. Yeah. So that, that, so the, uh, and what, what, what's happening now is that um, some states are, are really kind of wrestling with what to do with, with the testing, but that mm-hmm. we need to think in terms of population monitoring monitoring in the health workplace, in the workplace, especially mm-hmm. for frontline health workers and all, really vigilant testing. Uh-huh. Uh, one of the Nobel Prize winners, um, an economist, Paul Romer, he says we should be doing 30 million tests a day. We should be have a regular multiple times a week testing mm-hmm. of, of uh, health workers at all. Absolutely. Which if we can yeah. get to that point, that's yeah. the ideal. Yeah. Yeah, like I think we all healthcare workers should be getting tested daily. I think if we could get to that point, that'd be great. Yeah. Because we're exposed, like today I saw maybe like five or six COVID patients, you know, yeah. and I, you know, I find it very hard to believe that I haven't been seriously exposed at this point because yeah. there's no way you can do all the perfect PPE, the best precaution. I just, there's no way we're not getting exposed. There's just, it's, yeah. I feel like it's everywhere. Um, especially in the hospitals that are being hit hard. Well, on that, the, mm. I mean, the good news is that there is a, uh, there are a, there's a lot of work going on to develop these new tests, mm-hmm. to develop simpler, cheaper, more accurate tests. Um, uh, now we're talking about molecular tests, virological tests for the uh, coronavirus, mm. antibody, an, antibody testing. So mm-hmm. That's a, a separate conversation, but Technology is going to give us the the ability to rapidly expand over mm-hmm. over several months. Mm-hmm. We don't yet have the systems um, that um, uh, are developed enough in terms of the financing, the procurement, the distribution, mm-hmm. um, linking up uh, the lab capacity with the samples. So um, California is a state that's doing really well in the testing, and they've got a testing task force, which is um, uh, which has been very active, but one of the challenges now is they'll have a one lab that's got like uh, several waiting days, uh, several days waiting time, and other labs with capacity to do like you know thousands yeah. of days. <laughs> yeah. and, and so they're starting to do yeah. something. I mean, it's something that they never needed before. So there's a lot of capacity in the system, and that's yeah. what the, the this what we call the one three thirty. Um, national action plan moving from one million tests a week to three million to thirty million. Um, we can do that, but mm. we've got to line up all the different pieces to do that. Yeah. What do you think about um, like the like the decentralization of the responses? I guess I don't know if that's the right word to use, but I feel like each state and each city and each hospital is kind of operating in their own way and addressing things. In their own well, like different ways. Yeah. Is there a would so, the unification be beneficial in this sense? Well, a couple of thoughts on that. Mm-hmm. Um, that actually is exactly what happened in 1918, but mm-hmm. for different reasons. Mm-hmm. So among 400 cities that were studied, there was a fourfold difference in the um, uh, pandemic-associated mortality, um, and half of that had to do with health system, air pollution, and um, and poverty. But a big chunk of it was because they were all on their own. Mm. The president at the time, President Wilson, was so focused on 
on the World War One and winning that, he would not say a word publicly. Oh, he would not yeah. allow any government, federal government resources to be used. He would not listen to the medical leaders of the Navy or the Army or um, to his personal doctor. And so, you know, that's what, and there we know very well the cities that delayed response and and stopped their response or social distancing early. They were the ones that did the worst. Mm. When you look around now, the countries that have, um, have got their curve going down. I mean, the U.S. curve is going up and basically kind of plateaued. Mm-hmm. Other mm-hmm. other countries, um, you know, Korea, Australia, Japan, France, there was a unified national response. And that would be really helpful. It would be helpful in testing. Mm-hmm. As, it, as it turns out, the testing market in the U.S. is much more diffuse. Mm-hmm. Um, Big suppliers, but different different situations. A, a major national role in procurement would help tremendously to, to, to give the companies, if you're asking companies in an industry to increase 30-fold, they're taking a huge amount of financial risk. Mm-hmm. That's a reality. They're not charities. Yeah. So if we were able to, to have a national um, agreement around the procurement of, of test kits, mm-hmm. it gave them that certainty mm-hmm. and it all for production. And then we had the supply system. That would be a big, that would be a major difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll give you an example. Um, we were talking before about AIDS. Um, we, we were fortunate in MSH to be the, a partner on the, at what was the biggest USAID project in history at the time. Mm-hmm. We built from scratch the global supply chain for AIDS medicines, mm-hmm. for the, something called the Global Fund, Fight AIDS to be in USA. Mm-hmm. In the end, we were paying $120 per person per year for treatment that cost at the beginning $12,000 per person per year. Mm-hmm. And yeah. one of the reasons for that, for that, there were a lot of reasons for that, but one of the key reasons was we were a good buyer. We knew what we needed. We knew the quantities. The companies knew the quantities. They knew where the stuff was going. Um, they knew they'd get paid. That tells the producers, the suppliers, the reagents, and everything else. Yeah, go for it, guys. We're mm. gonna, you're, you're, you're gonna, we're gonna yeah. be a good buyer, and 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 that's what a, a good business wants. Is that is that that's not happening right now? That's, so that's not happening right now. No, not on the national level. No, no, no. Okay. And and it's happening on the state level, and we're 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 we're. Um, um, beginning to work with states regionally, and and that will have a, a big effect. It'll also create a real incentive if we bring in some of the, the the new suppliers of new technologies, and they're confident that there is this national market that they'll be able to access. Mm, interesting point. I, I haven't even thought about that, but I can definitely see why that's why that would hold things up. Um, and so, what is? You mentioned something really like earlier with the, our our response being not very unified. What is yeah. there? And then there's also like ulterior incentives in some cases, reelections. Like nobody wants to look bad in a pandemic, and they want to hush hush things like that. Makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, why don't? Why isn't there? Um, why in a pandemic do we not have? just a completely different leadership in charge? Like, is there, is it possible to have, you know, just, in, you know, if we, if, 
if the country was to declare to be in a pandemic, that leadership would switch over to a pandemic response team to take over for the well, country? Is that just not, I mean, that's, I mean, um, I feel like we're getting into like our constitution and things like that. Which yeah, I, don't I mean, well, do, but... I mean, some, that's what some countries do. I mean, mm-hmm. what, what you want, the thing is, what you want is um, a, a good, solid public health uh, leadership that, that, that gives the, the, you know, evidence-based, experience-based advice, but you also need the um, overall leadership um, uh, in, in the government, and all to going back to the messaging, yeah. to reinforce the messages of the public health community, to reassure people, um, and to um, provide empathy, uh, action. I mean, part of the messaging is saying these are the things you can do to be safer. Mm-hmm. And and when you have um, a uniformity of the the scientific community and and the leadership community in the in the in a in the country or the state that's what you need for a pandemic it's mm-hmm. like fighting a war i mean this analogy does fit because you've got an enemy the enemy is the virus yeah. that's the only enemy here it's the virus mm-hmm. um and i think everybody is trying in good faith to, to fight that virus mm-hmm. um but it, it will be more effective if we're doing it together in a unified way just like mm-hmm. just like in a war do you think after this we'll have we'll be able to structure a more unified approach to all of this or is cuz you know you know for the next time this happens do you think we'll have a better approach will we learn from this well i'm going to turn that over to your generation <laughs> <laughs> um, you know i i i think at I would hope that people, um, you know, step back and reflect and try to be thoughtful about the lessons and, you know, do their own um, reading and look at a variety of sources, look at different points of view. Um, I think we do. It would be really helpful if we got back to being able to have real conversations and um, ask questions, listen to the answers, Um, you know, yeah. Yeah, that would be cool. Dr. Quick, I want to be respectful of your time. And um, I want to thank you so much for coming on and talking with me. Um, I'm sure our listeners are really going to enjoy this. I'd I'd really love to do this again sometime and maybe talk about some other things if you ever if you ever have time um, in the future. Yeah, sure. It's been a pleasure talking with you, Remy, and, and I wish you well. Thank and you. I wish to all, of the, to all the family knocks and listeners out there, I mean, um, you know, when we look at who's trusted in society, um, it's 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 the people um, who we in whose hands we put our health and our well being, and so, and especially to those that are that are, you know, as as my son in law is as an emergency room doc, and my daughter is a is a family doc in in South Carolina. I mean, um, I know what the conversations they're having, and and I know just from my own family. Um, how how uh, facing that risk each day wears on people, um, and my my emergency room doc son in law was so thrilled when he when he got a, his new mask um, uh, after several weeks. Um, so we we know that society we haven't quite equipped you fully, but um, uh, yeah. But thanks for your work and and know yeah. that people uh, trust health providers and you got a critical role in this in this pandemic. Thank you so much, Doctor Quick. 
Um, it's a pleasure. Where can people find you and where can people grab your book? Um, anywhere. I mean, a- Amazon, Barnes and Noble, okay. um, a- any of the regular booksellers. Mm-hmm. And as I say, it's in, it's in Kindle. Um, you have, there's a UK and Australia edition and they also offer audiobook. I don't know whether it ever got onto Amazon. Um, <laughs> I like, I like audiobooks. Awesome. Um, All right. We'll put a link. Okay. We'll put a link in the, in the show notes. Okay, great. Thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Dr. Quick, thank you so much.